You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law. A divided Supreme Court rejects a religious challenge. Tell us a little about the facts of the case. Interviews with prominent attorneys and Bloomberg legal experts. My guest is former federal prosecutor Jimmy Garule. Joining me is Bloomberg Law reporter Jordan Rubin. And analysis of important legal issues, cases, and headlines. The Supreme Court takes on state secrets. Multiple lawsuits were filed against the emergency rule. Is this lawsuit for real? Bloomberg Law with June Grosso. From Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to Bloomberg Law Show. I'm Lydia Wheeler. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. We're in for June Grosso. Coming up on the show, we'll discuss the U.S. Supreme Court's latest COVID action and the increasing use of the court's so called shadow docket. But first, Bloomberg Law reporter Andrea Vittorio joins us to talk about the new extended reality experiences that technology companies are promising in the metaverse and the privacy pitfalls that could come with collecting more data from users. Andrea, thanks for being here. Can you start off by explaining what an extended reality is and what types of technology it typically includes? Sure. So I asked this question myself in writing this story because there are many different kinds of reality and um, there's sort of regular reality on one side and then uh, virtual reality on the other. And that's where um, there's a whole virtual world. You have a virtual version of yourself and you can uh, participate in virtual activities like games or um, events like concerts or shopping. So um, that's sort of what we think of when we talk about the metaverse. There are also versions in between where you can have holograms imposed on real life or um, you can see uh, digital characters like Pokemon Go um, in your everyday activities. So uh, the the virtual uh, realities that we are talking about can uh, mean a lot of different things. And so what are the digital experiences that extended reality companies are promising users? It doesn't seem like we're talking about just games here, right? Right. There are a lot of potential applications um, gaming is definitely one of them. Um, so is learning. There are schools that are experimenting with 
virtual reality uh, for students. There's also corporate training that can happen in virtual reality. You can um, help firefighters or, or doctors learn their craft um, just by practicing in a digital environment. Um, and there are just a lot of different um, use cases that we kind of are seeing explored, but um, could broaden out like uh, theme parks, travel, shopping. There's a lot going on there in the metaverse. So what kinds of data are, are companies collecting from people who use these sorts of extended reality devices? Um, and is any of it sensitive information? The data collected can depend on the device or how you're using it. Um, but there are a lot of potential collection points. Like when you wear a headset, it can gather information about like how your head is moving, what you're looking at. Um, you can sometimes hold uh, devices in your hands that will track what your hands are moving or what size they are even. So um, these are all considered um, pretty personal uh, pieces of information because they really vary by person um, and can even sort of amount to identifying a person if you have enough information about them and how they move and what they look like. So uh, privacy advocates are, are concerned just about the um, physical characteristics uh, or traits that are being gathered about people as they use these devices. Right. In your story that you recently wrote, you refer to, you know, tracking these movements as a kind of thumbprint of your movements, which I thought was really interesting. And I'm wondering, do companies have to get permission from users before they can collect this kind of data? And if so, how do they usually do that? Right. So permission is kind of an interesting concept, like when you're in a virtual world and you're interacting with different uh people or places, and there's sort of different touch points where you would need permission. So there's sort of like the base level of permission of using a device and creating an account, but then um, when you play a game or, or some other sort of activity in the, in the virtual world, um, you're interacting with another business potentially, and, and so they would have to potentially ask for permission to gather information about you, or if you go and buy something in the metaverse, then maybe you have to agree to a privacy policy of the, the merchant selling you something. So um, permission to gather information or to use information uh, could be many layered in this virtual world. Are there any laws in place either at the state or the federal level to protect this kind of digital data? So far, we have been thinking about privacy laws um, in virtual worlds just sort of as applying existing laws to this space. And um, so in Europe, there's a, a rule called the General Data Protection Regulation that would um, probably apply these general privacy rights to um, different platforms, regardless of where you are. So it would apply um, in the metaverse as well as just sort of on a website. Um, but then in the U.S., it, it might kind of depend on uh, different state laws since there's no national privacy law here. Um, so there's still a lot of questions around like how do these laws apply and like especially how do, how do location-based laws apply when like I might be in one physical place using a device but I might be going somewhere else in the world uh, in my device. So does that change like where the laws uh 
of that place would apply to me or whether the laws where I am physically apply to me. So um, there's still a lot of policy questions around uh, how existing laws might fit or um, if we need to have new laws written specifically for this space. Well, thanks so much. That's Bloomberg Law reporter Andrea Vittorio. You're listening to Bloomberg Law. Next up, we'll bring in University of Texas law professor Stephen Bladick to discuss the U.S. Supreme Court's COVID rulings. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Lydia Wheeler. This is Bloomberg. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Lydia Wheeler. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. We're in for June Grosso. We turn now from the metaverse to the COVID pandemic, which has upended life worldwide, including at the U.S. Supreme Court. To discuss how the justices have dealt with the health crisis, we bring in University of Texas law professor Stephen Vladek. Thanks so much for being here with us. Oh, thanks for having me. So on Tuesday, Justice Sonia Sotomayor refused to block New York City's requirement that employees, here a New York City police detective, be vaccinated against COVID-19. There was no explanation from the court, but we've seen the justices block other vaccine mandates and allow other requirements to stay in place. Do you have an understanding about why the court have might have rejected this particular request? Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at the overall body of work, and there's actually a fairly substantial number of cases where the justices have been asked to block various COVID restrictions, um, the cases that have succeeded basically with, I think, one exception, invariably fall into one of two categories. Either they are religious liberty-based challenges to COVID restrictions, whether it's a vaccine mandate or a limit on how many people can gather in the same place, um, or it is a challenge to a federal policy on grounds that the federal policy exceeds the statutory authority that the relevant agency, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, OSHA, right, that they had. And so with one exception, and the exception is the New York State eviction moratorium, every single case where the Supreme Court has agreed to block a state or federal COVID policy, the grounds have either been religious liberty or, you know, federal administrative law. 
You mentioned those in-person ga- gatherings uh, in particular, and I was, you know, on religious gatherings, I should say. And I was curious, how did the justices analyze those specific requests? Yeah, you know, I mean, as you guys know, part of the trick here is that very, very few of these rulings had actually come um, with opinions for the court. Um, but so there were a series of cases, you know, starting in the summer of 2020 and really culminating in the summer of 2021, where um, religious groups, others challenged, you know, gathering restrictions, especially in New York um, and California. And, you know, this is, I think, one place where we saw the confirmation of Justice Barrett have a huge shift. Um, so in the summer of 2020, the court was actually denying these requests to block the gathering restrictions um, in one or two cases, one from California, one from Nevada, by five to four votes. And it was Chief Justice Roberts joining the liberals in those cases. Um, and in one of those cases, a case called South Bay United Pentecostal Church, um, Chief Justice Roberts wrote separately to say, you know, I'm not unsympathetic to the claims that these plaintiffs are making, but this is, you know, not something we should be resolving on an emergency application. Um, you know, the sort of things are changing on the ground, the policies are shifting. Um, and so we should give at least some latitude, right, to the government decision makers. Um, that shifts quickly when Justice Barrett's confirmed so that, you know, within a month of her confirmation um, in November of 2020, now it's five to four the other way in a pair of cases blocking, you know, New York's restrictions on religious gatherings. Um, and in the first of those cases, a case called Roman Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn, we get a very short, unsigned opinion for the court that says the problem with these restrictions is that they are treating, you know, religious worship more harshly than they're treating other forms of essential secular businesses, and that that becomes the dominant problem that the justices find with a whole bunch of these, um, you know, state gathering restrictions during the pandemic, which I think is part of why we saw so much action through these cases only when the claims were about religious liberty as opposed to other due process or other constitutional rights. So you mentioned that a lot of these cases, most of them, in fact, came up through these emergency requests. I wanted to talk a little bit about the so-called shadow docket. Can you first explain to people what that even is? <laughs> sure. Um, so it, it's sort of it's a catchy term um, that Will Bode, a professor at the University of Chicago, coined in 2015 um, to describe basically all of the traditionally boring stuff the Supreme Court does. You know, we spend most of our time thinking about like the 55 to 60 big merits decisions the court hands down each year, Dobbs, you know, the gun case, et cetera. And as you guys both know, I mean, the reality is that at least by volume, the overwhelming majority of what the Supreme Court does is actually not those. It's these unsigned and usually unexplained orders. Um, most of those are anodyne, right? No one really gets exercised about extensions of time to file briefs. Um, even when the court is denying certiorari, that is to say, refusing to take up an appeal, you know, that doesn't often make headlines. But what we've seen in the last couple of years is we've seen more and more of these orders, especially when parties are asking for emergency relief, especially when a party is saying, I want to appeal a decision from a lower court while I'm appealing it. I want you to block this state policy. Um, We're seeing the court not only sort of hear and and take seriously more of those, but grant more of those requests. Um, And that's coming, you know, without oral argument in almost all cases, with limited briefing, um, oftentimes through orders that have no explanation, and if they have an explanation, through a short explanation. Um, As you guys know well, these orders can come at all times of day or even in the middle of the night. And so I think, you know, the, the COVID pandemic was in some respects a flashpoint 
for how much the court is doing through these unsigned, unexplained orders, um, and really for how those orders can have massive real-world effects, even when we have no idea why the court is doing what it's doing. Um, Steve, you know, as you mentioned just re- you know just now that. Y- it seems like you're a big critic of the shadow docket, um, you know, because these cases are coming before the court. We're not getting oral argument. We're not getting, uh, you know, opinions. What's can you put into perspective, though, what's the harm in the fact that we're not having like a fully briefed um, case and arguments before the court? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there are a couple of harms. I mean, as I, to be fair, I don't think the shadow docket is per se a bad thing. Um, like there are going to be emergencies and the court has to have a way of dealing with them. I think that the trouble comes when you have the court basically issuing an unsigned, unexplained order, let's say blocking a California COVID policy, for example, um, in a case where, first, the lower courts actually had detailed hearings and took significant evidence um, and actually you know, did a bunch of fact-finding to support their, their conclusion that what California was doing was above board. But second, where the court then turns around and says, hey, lower courts, you are bound to follow our unsigned, unexplained order in this case. And so I think the, the problem the shadow docket creates is not just that it's a compressed opportunity for the court to do its job, but that it also deprives the court in the typical case of the ability to provide the kind of lengthy, principled rationale that, you know, guys, we may not agree with, but at least we understand. And that, you know, the relevant parties, the local and state governments, the lower courts can figure out how to apply in future cases with, you know, marginally different facts. We don't have those in most of these orders. I think that's part of why, you know, the proliferation of these decisions, especially in context in which the justices are treating them as creating precedents, um, is, I I think, hard to defend. Coming up next, we'll continue our conversation with University of Texas law professor Stephen Vladek. I'm Lydia Wheeler. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Lydia Wheeler. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. We're in for June Grosso. We're back with Professor Stephen Vladek of the University of Texas. Uh, When we left, we were talking about the court's shadow docket and how most of the COVID cases came up through uh, that procedure. Of course, there were two major exceptions. That was on on two federal vaccine mandates, one that the Supreme Court upheld, and another more broader mandate that the Supreme Court struck down. Can you tell us, uh, these cases started on the shadow docket themselves, though, right? Yeah, and, and actually, I, mean, I, I think we could even probably debate whether they were even exceptions. So the, right, there were two sets of really high-profile challenges to vaccine mandates from the Biden administration. One was the OSHA um, proposed emergency rule that would have required every large employer to impose a vaccination or testing requirement on their employees. Um, and the other was a rule promulgated by the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services that basically required all healthcare facilities that receive federal Medicare or Medicaid funds, a whole lot of them, um, to require their healthcare workers to be vaccinated. So these both came to the Supreme Court through the shadow docket. The, the um, OSHA mandate um, was not blocked by the Sixth Circuit. Um, And then a whole bunch of parties, 15 different sets of applicants, asked the Supreme Court to issue an emergency stay of the OSHA mandate. Um, The CMS mandate was blocked by two different district courts on a nationwide basis. And the Biden administration came to the Supreme Court um, asking for emergency relief in the form of 
stays of those injunctions. And so what the court did that I think made it look like it was less shadowy is for the first time, near as we can tell since like 1971, um, the full court decided to hear oral argument on the vaccine mandates. And they did, you know, in early January, um, and they turned around about a week later and handed down these, you know, unsigned per curiam for the court opinions um, where they blocked the OSHA rule and unblocked the CMS rule. And, you know, I, I guess, guys, to me, those cases are a remarkable bellwether because, first, you know, the fact that the justices saw fit to hold argument, I think, was a bit of a concession that they realized that, like, you know, the normal shadow docket process was insufficient for cases of, the, of that magnitude. But second, you know, there's a line in the majority opinion in the OSHA case where the, you know, whoever wrote it, <laughs> we don't know who it is, um, <laughs> talks about the equities and how, you know, the, the federal government said, if you block the OSHA mandate, all these bad things will happen. The challengers, including a bunch of red states, said, if you don't block the mandate, all of these bad things will happen. And then the court says, it's not our job to balance those trade-offs. Um, and I have to say, guys, like that, that line, as someone who studies this, like kind of sent me spinning because it's actually exactly the court's job mm-hmm. in the context of these kinds of emergency applications to balance those trade-offs. And so I think, you know, in that respect, these cases were actually this perfect encapsulation of how the shadow docket has evolved, of how more and more high-profile disputes are being resolved through these expedited processes and how in that context where the court is supposed to be balancing the harms to each side, um, the court is really increasingly just deciding what it thinks the right answer is on the merits. I want to talk with you more about how the shadow docket has evolved, um, because I know you've been following a change in how parties and the justices use the shadow docket. So can you talk about those changes um, and particularly those changes under the Trump administration? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, it used to be, as as I said, we've had the shadow docket forever. um, And historically, the body of cases that were the the source of the most shadow docket activity um, involved the death penalty, where, you know, you'd oftentimes have last-minute applications from death row inmates for stays of execution, or if a lower court had blocked an execution, a last-minute application from a state to unblock the execution. And really, guys, into the 2010s, like, that was the majority of what was interesting about emergency applications in the Supreme Court. The shift in the Trump administration is a shift in just the kinds of cases that are ending up on the shadow docket and cases with not just massive implications for one death row prisoner, but for state or federal policies. So just to take one data point, um, during the Bush and Obama administrations from 2001 to 2017, two pretty different administrations. The federal government filed a total of eight emergency applications in the Supreme Court, so one every other year on average. During the Trump administration, so four years, the Justice Department files 41 applications. And I think, you know, there's a longer conversation to to sort of be had about, you know, the sort of what caused that uptick. Uh, Whatever caused it, right, what it means is that there was a lot more... um, nationwide policy challenging going on on the shadow docket, where, you know, it started as like the travel ban, then it turned into a case about the transgender ban, you know, immigration, environmental law, all of a sudden, right, every major contentious um, challenge to state or federal policies is coming to the shadow docket. And I Mm -hmm. think that's the shift that has led to why this is having so much more of an impact on all of us. 
Hmm. Well, thank you so much for that. That's University of Texas law professor Stephen Vladek. You're listening to Bloomberg Radio. Up next, we'll talk with Bloomberg News reporter Jeff Feely about Elon Musk and his fight to get out of his $44 billion Twitter deal. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Lydia Wheeler. This is Bloomberg. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do. That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Lydia Wheeler. We're in for June Grasso. Elon Musk has been engulfed in a legal battle over his failed $44 billion deal to buy Twitter. He's now claiming a whistleblower's allegations against the company should let him walk away from that purchase agreement. Joining us now to talk about this litigation is Bloomberg News reporter Jeff Feely. Jeff, thanks for being here. No problem. Can you start off by telling us a bit of background uh, about this litigation and how it came about? Yes. Uh, It came about because Mr. Musk, the world's richest man, decided he had a a yen to own Twitter, which he is a very frequent user of that platform to tweet out the various things that come to his mind. And he decided that maybe it would be good for him to buy Twitter. So he, back in April, offered 54 dollars and 20 cents a share of the social media platform, uh, waived his due diligence uh, on the deal and signed. Well, uh, when the market turned a bit and Twitter's stock value fell, Mr. Musk was not happy. And he decided that maybe he didn't want Twitter as much as he thought he did. So he at decided to cancel or walk away from the $44 billion deal. Well, the folks at Twitter, understandably, weren't happy about that, and so they filed suit in Delaware Chancery Court to force him to consummate the deal. The reason they came to the the first state is because under the merger agreement, that was where uh, all legal disputes had to be litigated. Delaware has a long tradition of its business courts handling Uh, merger and acquisition disputes. So that sort of gets us to where we are. And so we've discussed before on this uh, show about the whistleblower who recently came forward with allegations against Twitter. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and what it is that they're alleging is happening at the company? Sure. The whistleblower's name is uh, Peter Zatko. He's a well-known hacker um, and security pardon me, computer security expert, and he was Twitter's uh, head of computer security for a while. 
Uh, while at Twitter, Mr. Zatko says that he raised uh, issues about the number of spam and robot accounts that are embedded in the company's uh, customer base. Uh, these accounts are not basically ones with humans behind them, but they are, you know, uh, put on there to increase people's uh, audience, if you will. And um, he claims that the folks at Twitter uh, had no idea how many of these accounts were, you know, part of their customers and really didn't seem to care to delve too deeply into it because, you know, the more customers they have, the more they can charge advertisers. So if they, they, you know, didn't want to dig into it, it's because they didn't want to reduce their advertiser numbers. So uh, Mr. Zatko got fired for performance issues a couple of months ago, and he has now come forward and lodged a so-called whistleblower's complaint with regulators and uh, congresspeople. And those complaints uh, include laxity of computer security, a uh, disregard for privacy issues, and this whole issue about the spam and robot accounts. Those accounts are important because Mr. Musk has made them the centerpiece of his legal arguments, saying that he's justified in walking away from the deal. Isn't Elon Musk here um, asking the court to kind of amend his argument? Um, And is the judge in this case likely to allow him to do that? He is asking to amend his counterclaims. So Twitter has filed the actual suit. Mr. Musk has filed his defenses and counterclaims to those. And those counterclaims focused solely on the bot issue at first. Well, now that this gentleman has come forward talking about security issues and privacy concerns, he wants to amend his counterclaims to say that these are other uh, legitimate bases for for pulling the rug out from the deal. Uh, Under Delaware law, uh, judges have wide authority to amend. And it's basically granted as long as it does not prejudice the other side in some way. So most people think that Judge McCormick will allow some amendment uh, to add these other issues to the case. And do you think that these whistleblower allegations are ultimately going to help Musk break the deal with Twitter? Well, we really don't know at this point. It's too early to tell whether Mr. Zatko's allegations have so-called meat on the bones or sour grapes by a fired employee. Uh, People really need to dig into them to find out whether there's substance or not. What has Twitter said in response to to Musk, you know, using the whistleblower complaints in his defense? Well, they have said that Mr. Obviously, they are the ones who 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 let people know that Mr. Zatko was fired for performance issues. They also have said that his complaint is, quote, riddled with inaccuracies, close quote. So, um, again, we're going to have to wait and see uh, whether the rubber meets the road on these issues that he's raised about Twitter's operations. And do we have any sense about how many Twitter users are really bot accounts or are really real? Or is that just an unknown at this point? Apparently in the industry, the social media industry, this is a prob- it's a problem trying to figure out robots from humans. Um, Twitter has more than 230 million customers. It has said in its regulatory or securities filings with the SEC that it believes 
the bot and spam accounts are somewhere about five, around 5% of their customer base. Mr. Musk and his experts have done some preliminary analysis, and they postulate that it could be as much as a third of the 230 million-plus customers who are not humans. The reason that is important, again, is that you can only really make money with advertising from you know, humans with eyeballs watching mm-hmm. the ads. And, you know, if the Twitter folks, you know, have, have written their SEC disclosures in a masterful way to hedge them, but if there turns out to be a major discrepancy, you know, and there's many more bots than 5%, that could be a problem for the deal. Uh, so has this dispute hurt Twitter in any way? I mean, are market shares down? Shares are down. Shares are down as part of an overall drop in the tech sector as well. But shares are down, and I do believe this whole fight has certainly had an effect on Twitter. They have said that the uncertainty has cast a cloud over the shares. It's caused uh, unrest among the employees. Uh, there's been, you know, a, a significant brain drain. And, you know, it's just it's just not it's not a pretty it's not pretty optics either about the way Twitter operates and how it handles things and this whole stuff about the bots. It's just not pretty. Well, you can understand why Twitter would want to get this trial over then. When is it slated for? And also, I read that Musk is trying to delay it. What's the strategy there? So the trial right now is set for October 17th in beautiful Wilmington, Delaware. And it is, of course, Chancery Court is a business court. It is a non-jury court. So Judge McCormick will hear it by herself and then render a decision some months afterwards. Uh, Mr. Musk originally wanted to have the trial in February. He wanted to have a nice long time for discovery and everything. But the Twitter folks wanted to fast-track it. They wanted to, you know, they said the uncertainty was hurting the company. So a quicker decision would be better for them. So uh, Judge McCormick sort of split the baby. Twitter asked for September. Uh, Musk asked for February. She said it for mid-October. Now Mr. Musk is saying with the emergence of Mr. Zatko, the whistleblower, there's going to be some more time needed to dig into his claims, analyze them, and figure out the implications for the case. So they had originally asked for November in some court filings yesterday. Today, our sources are saying they're even thinking about asking for uh, early December for a trial date. Interesting. Um, Can you tell us who's been subpoenaed in this case and if those people could end up as witnesses? Well, it would take, you know, a couple hours to tell you all the subpoenas because there's been over 100 of them (laughs) issued. But we've we've had some big names. Jack Dorsey, the the former CEO of Twitter. He's likely, I suspect he's likely to testify. Uh, we've had Larry Ellison, the head of Oracle. He's an investor in the case. Uh, there have been uh, investment vehicles tied to Mark Andreessen, the very famous tech investor. That's, that's a pretty good start. And so a judge ordered Musk to disclose all of his potential investors. How come, and could those people end up being witnesses too? Well, I think the... Uh, the judge was trying to get a, a sense of the universe of investors and advisors to Mr. Musk. 
and to get an idea of whether or not there might be a second equity raise, which is possible. Um, you know, there's a bunch of funds who have um, invested in the deal. I mean, he raised, he did a first equity raise of over $7 billion uh, for the deal. And, you know, there, he, I think there continues to be some conversations among folks. So uh, Twitter is entitled to know who they're talking to. So that's why McCormick ordered them to give up both the names of the investors and the potential investors. And that does it for this episode of Bloomberg Law. I'm Lydia Wheeler. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. This is Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.